When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. A one, two, three, four. Thanks for listening to this podcast produced by Diddy TV, your source for all things Americana and Roots music. Visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content or download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Hey there, I'm Sam Shansky. Thanks for tuning in to Insights. Our guest today is Michael Brower, a world-renowned, multi-Grammy award-winning sound engineer who's worked with some of the most influential and successful artists in the world, ranging from Bob Dylan, Aretha Franklin, The Rolling Stones, Luther Vandross, and Paul McCartney, to John Mayer, Coldplay, My Morning Jacket, and numerous others. I was able to catch up with Michael while he was hunkered down in the Catskills in New York. Whether he's working out of Electric Lady Studios, Media Sound Studios, where he got his start, or any other space, Michael has an unparalleled ability to bring out the best possible sound from artists while putting his heart and soul into the work. It was an honor to get to speak with him, and it's an honor to share our conversation with you now. You're listening to Insights by Diddy TV. How's everything going for you today? It's going good. You know, it's, uh, it's a nice cold day up here in the Catskills. Are you a New Yorker uh, by birth? By birth, I am. I am a native New Yorker, but I grew up in... France, uh, from time I was, my mother took me from the time I was three months until I was seven. And then I came back to New York City and uh, grew up with my dad. So, but I would say I'm a native New Yorker, aside from yeah. that little side trip. <laughs> I'd like to know a little more about your story. I'd also like to talk about your career and, you know, um, what you're up to these days and everything. But it's nice to learn a little about a person and their story first to, to understand sure. them. So, uh, What's your story? Uh, what is my story? My story is um, there was always something I wanted to do and to accomplish. And, and animals, I just loved so much. And I think from the time I was a kid, I wanted to be a veterinarian. And um, right about the time that the Beatles came out, I, was, I had chopsticks and I was playing all over my dad's furniture and basically creating things and everything he owned. <laughs> and so, <laughs> you know, short of him throwing me out of the house, uh, he bought me a drum set. And so I started banging on the drums and became, you know, a pretty good drummer. And um, I was going to boarding school. So uh, I put together a band and we were just, oh, you know, playing our own thing. We weren't, we weren't a cover band. We were just doing our own thing. And, um, you know, eventually I, when I went to college, I thought, okay, I got to get serious. And I was still, I still want to be a veterinarian. <laughs> and so my father said, yeah, okay, leave the drums at home. And I was like, oh, okay. And, <laughs> and I was in pre-med and it, it didn't take long before I was thinking, wow, I, I really miss playing. I mean, you know, and my father was like, well, you know, son, that could be a, a weekend thing for you. I was like, yeah, the problem is that 
I'd rather do that than anything else. And you can imagine telling your father, you know, I don't want to be a, a doctor. I want to be a musician. Yeah. But he supported me. You know what I mean? You know, he's like, all right, you know, but do it well. And so he, you know, he shipped the, the drums out to Ohio where I was going to college. And and I'd already put a band together. I think that before the end of the first day of arriving on campus, I already had a bass player and a guitar player, you know, and those, be, those became my best friends for the next four years. Oh, um, cool. you know, and then, then when we graduated, um, I was like, well, I, I, by that time we had joined another band from college. They were a horn band. And so now we had a seven piece band. And oh. so music just, you know, was, was still part of me uh, we weren't we were a cover band so that you know the life shelf life of that wasn't going to last too long but what i was doing was i was recording the band i had a little two track and i just always recorded them and i really had fun doing it and you know and i would balance it you know i had to learn how to balance it well so nobody yelled at me you know, I only hear you. And I was like, yeah, well, you know, I only got two microphones. You know, that wasn't the excuse. So I, I got pretty good at that. And then I actually went uh, right when I graduated, there was a course, a two week course at Eastman School of Music. And little did I know that the greatest engineers were teaching there. Uh, I mean, it was like maybe 10 or 15 engineers, but Phil Ramone was one of them. Both Green brothers, Al and Ed Green, were teaching there, as, as were many others. But obviously, the one that, that really impressed me the most was Phil Ramone. And he, um, you know, it's interesting. I mean, I had no idea what anybody was talking about. I, I, I could only sign up for the two-week, and that was advance. So I had no idea what anybody was saying. Literally, and I'd lean over, I'd go, <laughs> what's what does wet mean you know and right. they'd look at me like you're, you're in the advanced class yeah i know i know what's wet mean <laughs> <laughs> what's cardioid mean you know literally i mean what i i just what is parallel what is i didn't know anything so i kept writing it all down you know and i was thinking to myself boy i don't know if this is a career i want this seems so technical you know i'm yeah, a drummer I, I'm, I i want to express myself and so i was I was, you know, I was interested, but I was really scared by it all. And I was like, this, I, I, I want to still create. And it wasn't until this one evening, it was after the classes and we're having a dinner and there's like 10, 15 people at this table. And it's Phil Ramone at the end of the table. And I think it was Ed Green or some other engineer and they're, and they're talking, you know, and I'm listening and I'm like, I don't know. I'm just waiting for something to happen. And he, you know, he says to Phil, Phil, you know that this guy's got the fastest fingers in the business. I'm like, <laughs> what does that mean? You know? <laughs> and he goes, when you go down, when he's got his hands on the faders and he's moving and he's, you know, got his eyes closed. And I was like, and it was just like one of those little light bulbs. Literally, you would have seen it just go. Whoop, boom, right. <laughs> and I'm looking around. I'm like, I'm looking around to see everybody else going, wow. You know, and it was like, everybody's like, uh-huh. Uh -huh. And I was like, 
wow. And I looked at the guy, I said, so you can perform on these faders? He goes, well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what he's doing. I was like, I was like, wow, this could be my new instrument. That was literally how I thought of it. And then I wasn't so scared anymore. And I thought, well, if I can play drums, you know, with four arms going, I can certainly move two faders, you know, two hands only. And that's, I'm telling you, that was exactly how I approached it when I, when I started looking for a job. And, and eventually, I, mean, I went to Chicago, I went to the studios, I ended up at, uh, at Media Sound. And almost from the beginning, we were allowed to record, you know, after sessions and stuff. I was just an intern, but we were allowed. There was assistance and other stuff, and I jumped in. And um, that was my approach right off the bat. I'd stand there, and I would just perform. (laughs) I was like, yeah, this is how I'm going to do it, you know. That's very interesting. So this is the 1970s, right? Yeah, I was hired in 76. Um, I I left the, I graduated in 73 and then I was in a band for a couple of years and then I was looking around for a job for about a year or so. And I was pretty old by this point, you know, a lot, a lot of people just were like, not that interested. I was 25 and they're like, Oh no, no, you're a little old. You know, you're going to have to be mopping for a year. And you know, what do you know? And I would flunk all their tests, you know, all the, the test they would give you for what's, you know, what are different cardioid patterns of this microphone and that mat and what is this and what is all this. And I was like, who cares? I mean, I know music. I mean, this, isn't that the stuff that you're going to teach me? You know, <laughs> it's like, I'm not trying to get into college or a university or something. You know, it's like, eh. and then I, I got to media sound and they just liked me. I think one yeah. of the reasons is because I look like their star engineer. Michael Delug, like you know, we got a star engineer, Michael Delug. If you if you're half as good as him, you'll be good. You look like him, you know. It's like I, I don't care how I get in, <laughs> I'm fine with that. And that was it, man. It was like because I knew what I wanted, right? I wasn't some kid who was like, yeah, I'll try it out. It was like I was there seven days a week, That's and there were some really interesting projects going on there at the time, right? I mean, you guys were doing tons of uh, record. There was a lot of stuff. There was, yeah, the, the Fatback Band, all the R&B was happening at Media Sound. Um, but everybody, Frank Sinatra was going in there, uh, the Stones, the, the uh, you know, and then you had all the great R&B musicians that had come from Motown because Motown had moved to L.A. So you had Bob Babbitt on bass and, and a lot of the guys had moved to New York City instead of going to L.A. So you had great, you know, a lot of these records were being done by studio musicians. You know, it was a band made up of studio musicians. And, and then if, if there was success with this band, then they would hire a band, you know, to play. But so many records were done by these studio musicians. So, you know, and Paul Schaefer was there. I saw him twice a day. Uh, Will Lee, Jean Tropez, Alan Schwartzberg. Uh, I mean, the, the list just goes on and on. And of course, all the great arrangers, right? And so, it, it, and of course, my favorite drummer, Bernard Purdy, would come in there. I mean, I was playing his records all the time. Pretty Purdy, 
you know, and, and the first time I saw him was the first time I remember getting absolutely just starstruck and nervous, you know, (laughs) and he was so kind, you know, I was like, pretty purdy. Right. And he gave me his drumsticks and I was just like, Oh "Oh my goodness, I'm in, this is the greatest life. (laughs) You know? Wow. So, so, uh, I was so happy. I mean, I was there literally seven days a week and, and working two. Sh- I mean, I, I moved up pretty quickly, although it, it was kind of standard, but I moved up pretty quickly by 78. I was a staff engineer. So in two years I moved up and, um, I didn't look back, man. I was just so happy, you know, and I had the greatest engineers to learn from. I mean, you couldn't have been lucky or great music great engineers to teach because back then you know studios all had staff engineers and then of course staff assistants and all the engineers would teach what they knew to the assistants you didn't have one person to learn from you had like six or seven you know it was just incredible but it was a pretty focused environment right like uh you know it wasn't just like uh, everybody was running the halls and partying and everything this was a place where work was really being done just constantly constantly and the way it worked back then um it it was twofold during the day from 9 a.m until 5 p.m it was all the ad dates for commercials okay right and because at that point uh that's when yeah when all the ad agencies nobody really had their own place so they came to media sound or a and r or to cut uh, jingles, it was all yeah, it was all jingles. It was all okay. jingles morning, and so at you know by nine a.m. you'd have everything set up, and it could be a forty-piece band, right? <laughs> you got strings, horns, everything, everybody playing at the same time, and you know by ten o'clock it's all done, and now at eleven you're starting to do overdubs, and uh, you know by one o'clock you're you're mixing it. And by two o'clock, it's done. <laughs> you know, by, you know, or at the latest five o'clock, and then you're breaking yeah. it down. Everybody, you know, it's breaking the whole room down, and then it's set back up for the for the records at night. You couldn't do records during the day because because none of the studio musicians were available because they were doing jingles because jingles paid double, triple scale. Oh wow while the night records played single scale <laughs> so yeah. albums played single sets uh, you know so um and then at six o'clock you know i would do uh i would start making i'd be recording records and i'd be seeing the same guys i saw during the day and uh amazing this went on and on and on and i just don't i don't remember what a saturday felt like for years i didn't care <laughs> And you were like just a, you know, single young man at this time, I presume. Yeah. I mean, I was single and, but you know, I would, I would have a girlfriend, but it wouldn't last long because I'd be in the studio all the time, you know, they go, what about me? And I'm like, yeah, I, you know, I'm not getting back until four in the morning. So it was rough, but it was, I was very lucky that I was actually single. So I could really, really totally focus on that. At a certain point you began to work with Luther Vandross, right? Yeah, that was one of the first uh, really great gigs. I had I had recorded and mixed. Uh, well, the, the the first change record uh, 
he, the producer, um, Petrus, Fred Petrus, was over at um, Power Station. And they were trying to find the right singer. They're going through a lot of people. And one of the singers there, the contract singer, said, you know, why don't you try Luther Vandross and try it and try Michael Brower over at Media Sound? And that was Yvonne Lewis. And so she, uh, so they said, oh, okay, fine. And so I was like, ah, thanks a lot, Yvonne, you know? And, and so Luther comes in. I knew Luther because he was doing all the jingles. And I knew how, you know, I knew how to record him. I knew everything, you know, quickly. And back then we were fast. I mean, everything was set up. The second they started singing, it was being recorded. You know, nothing would ever take a chance on a great take being lost. And he comes in and there's these two Italian producers, uh, Mauro Malavasi, who's the actual writer and, and the, the producer, and then Fred Petrus, who was the executive producer of everything. And they come in, Mauro is a sweetheart. He must, he must be like 20 at this time, maybe, maybe even younger. And in comes Luther and, uh, you know, I mean, Luther is, whenever Luther was in the room, you were always laughing. He was just very, very funny guy, you know? And so he goes, all right, you know, let's listen. What do we got here? And, uh, and it was glow of love. Oh, wow. So he, he's got the lyrics, you know, and we start playing the song and he's like, glow of love. <laughs> okay. Okay. Let's go outside and do it. You know? It was like, all right. So he goes outside and I don't even think there was a, a music stand. There. I think he was holding the piece of paper, at least on the first song. It was a, a yellow pad and he's holding the lyrics. Oh, like a legal pad. Yeah, it was a legal pad. And he sings the song that one time down. That was it. That's the take. And oh, they are just, their minds are blown, right? Because they've been suffering trying to get the right singer on this. And it, it was done, you know, <laughs> and then it's like they go, okay, well, we have a second song for you on uh, searching. And so I think he, this time he, he comes in, same thing, runs it that halfway down. He goes, okay. And he goes back out there. I think I got him a music stand at that point. First take again, first take. <laughs> it was just like, and I'm, I, you know, if there were a, a few words that punched in, I don't recall because I just remember the fact that it was the first take and then they had me mix it, you know, they, okay, now let's mix it. And I was a very, very fast mixer back then. We all were at media sound. That was just the thing. You mix the song and usually in three hours, no more than four at the most. Right. And so you know, and it was all manual mixing. And of course, I'm, I'm in, I'm so happy. I love these songs and I'm standing up and I'm mixing and I'm doing <laughs> the cues, you know, and I'm turning on, like on, on searching, there was this, um, timbali and I was having it going into this reverb with phasers and flangers and I would be turning it up, 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 up louder and turning, you know, <laughs> all of this manual stuff. And, and I, I kept rehearsing it till I knew, where all my cues were, but I was still nervous. And then at that point where I kind of knew what was going on, because that's when you're, the excitement still going, I'd say, tell my sister, okay, hit record. Let's do this, you know? 
And it's uh, for me, it was a performance and they could feel that. And of course you can feel the energy in the song and, and, uh, it was it, and with Luther and he was so happy and I get and that's how I I got to do his solo record because he loved what how that turned out on the two songs that he sang on on that first record and then that led to um never too much album which we did in bits he had no deal so we'd come in on a weekend and we'd record two songs out of his all out of his pocket that's incredible um, I'd like to talk a little bit about experimentation. Um, what are some stories about experimenting in the studio that you could share or highlight for us? You know, some of the experimenting was, it, it was interesting as recording. Um, the thing that they, that everybody at, at media did was if one person had a great sound uh, getting, recording the drums with just the over, you know, with microphones, just over the toms, uh-huh. I, I remember Godfrey Diamond would go, I can do the uh, same great sound with the microphones inside. <laughs> you know, they take the <laughs> bottom heads out and he would do it inside. He would do everything backwards and it would just sound great. You know, and it, there was, it was always this feeling of break all the rules that you can, as long as you know what the rules are that you're going to break. You know, if you're going to distort something, know that you're distorting it. Know when it distorts. Don't, you know, don't take something too far and you're overloading the desk and you didn't know any better, you know? So mm -hmm. it, it was, it was that kind of, you know, thing that they always just, just by, they were a role model that way. They didn't say you've got to do anything. That's just the way they were. They were just real pioneers of trying to you know, always do something new, something great. Uh, I think even the, that stereo harmonizer that became very, very popular later. And they have it in plugins now where it, we first got this, the even tied harmonizer, I think it was a nine, 900 or maybe a 901 or I don't remember. It was the first one that came out and it, it, if you wanted it, you know, you can make things sharp or flat. And if you just slightly touch it, it would shake between like 100 and 999, you know? <laughs> and so we got another one that would shake between 100 and 101, right? And it would just be shaking. And then we would have it left and right and we would send vocals to it or we would send sacks, you know, all the sax you would hear on hall of notes and stuff like that that sound you know that was right. what it's and i'm pretty sure we started that because nobody ever shared secrets between studios you know all the tricks and the stuff we did always stayed in that studio that was the sound if you wanted to get that sound you went to that studio it wasn't until many years later you know that we started sharing what we had learned but you know things like that and and it, it, a day didn't go by where somebody was trying to blow somebody else's mind just within the studio. Hey, check this out. You know, the guitar sounds that, that the guys would get, you know, because the main room was a church. And so, you know, where you would place the microphones in this church and uh, or where you would place the drums. It was, you know, I think in general, that's, that's my memory of, of, what was going on maybe you know except for those couple examples everything else was just like 
that excitement of trying something new all the time. It's incredible. So in a 10 year span, I mean, you went from, you know, being an intern essentially uh, to working with the Rolling Stones around 89 Steel Wheels album. I mean, uh, right. What was right. that like? That was, I, I still remember maybe four or five days into it. I think I have a picture somewhere. I have to go find it where I'm looking at the track sheet. You know, there's about four or five days and they like me. So I'm staying right <laughs> past that. I mean, test. That's the, that's the first hurdle. And I, I'm looking at the track sheet and I just turned to my assistant. And I was like, I'm mixing the Rolling Stones. <laughs> I mean, how surreal, surreal, right? Because I was in my band, we played all the Stones, you know? Right. We played all those tracks. And here I am mixing. And it's just like, wow, man, life is good. Life is good. And, you know, but that first, the first day was, was the scariest day because, you know, I was a pop mixer. I had been doing all the pop records and Chris was on uh, Chris Kimsey was their producer and he had the same manager as I did. And so, and they were running behind, they really needed somebody to mixing while they were finishing up. And so um, Chris called me and he goes, Hey, do you want to come by and check out, you know, come to London and, and let's do one song with you and see how it turns out. So really I was there for one song and I, I could have turned around and been sent back home after that, you know? Wow. So I go in and I start mixing and Chris is there to help me. And he goes, listen, you know, this isn't pop, you know, back off a little bit on the compression and you don't have to hear everything, you know, with the stones, you don't really hear anything. It's all kind of a blend, especially between the, the drums and the bass and the bass and the guitars. It's just, everything is just kind of, you know, there's no closeness. And I don't, I, I'm trying to understand that, but it's, it's a new language. And so, you know, I'm mixing, I'm mixing and Chris comes in and goes, eh, it's, 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 it's okay. Let's just see what mix says. And so I think it was, this was the one time where maybe, Usually Mick and Keith always came in separately. Um, I, in fact, on this time, I think they probably did too. And so, so anyway, Mick comes in and he's listening and he goes, Oh, Michael, <laughs> you've got to turn off all the compressors. <laughs> turn everything off. <laughs> and I was like, <laughs> so I back off on everything and he goes okay melody I just want the melody I don't care about the keyboards I don't care about anything else where's that melody you know so I'm like okay and I'm calm there was something thank goodness that I had that that you know I I, I wasn't except for that first time with Bernard Purdy I didn't have that kind of star gaze or or you know afraid of you know i was always about the music and he's a person and wow it's cool he's there but that's it there wasn't that <gasps> right yeah that would have ruined the session because if they even get a feeling that you're you know you're just starstruck it's not going to go well so i said okay okay and i'm just but inside i'm like oh my 
God, it's dying inside. <laughs> and then, and then I think Mick leaves and then Keith walks in and he's listening and he goes, ah, ah Michael. <laughs> I go, yes. <laughs> goes, What's that ping, ping, ping and ding, ding, ding. And I'm like, he goes, are those Charlie's drums? I was just like, oh. He goes, I don't want to hear bing, 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 and ding, ding, ding. I just want to hear the drums in the room. You know, I was like, I had too much of the direct. I had too much, you know. And Chris had used these little lavalier microphones for the room, like two little lavalier, you know, the ones that, that you put in here, yeah. like Sony lavaliers. And he had set those up in the room. And then I think he had some PZM plate or something. And Chris was always just gently said, Michael, just bring down the kick and the snare direct and bring up that lavalier mic. So I went, Whoop! and he, you know, Keith looks at me and he goes, yeah. <laughs> but he was very courteous about it. You know, he was just very direct. He was a real honest, straight up guy. And you know, he's a real gentleman all the time. So that's one little story of that. But uh, they were great. It was it was just a great experience. So, you know, Diddy TV is an Americana and Roots Music Network. And um, I'm curious, along the way, you've worked with some really incredible um, Americana artists, you know, ranging from Raylan Baxter to Jackie Green, Anderson East. But at a higher level, uh, Bob Dylan, Leonard Cohen, Simon and Garfunkel, Willie Nelson. I'm curious, uh, you know, through your work with these artists, um, what does Americana music mean to you as you've watched it sort of progress over the years? It's always about just the soul of, of the times, of what's going on, you know, it, and, and the lyrics, it's the stories that are being told. You know, we, um, a lot of these records, you know, except for the Bob Dylan and, you know, the obvious big ones, the smaller artists like Raymond, I just had so much fun wanting to mix their records because the songs touched me. You know, I had, I had, I would mix projects where the budgets were big. I had projects where there's barely any budget because they're just new or they've got, they're on a tiny little indie label. And I just didn't care because yeah. I was like, wow. And that Raylan, you know, it also, he did, a, he did on vinyl too, which I just love it. I think originally I was hired to mix three songs or something. I go, please, let me mix three more. <laughs> you know, let me mix three more. You know, and each one of those is like their budget was getting smaller and smaller. I said, that's okay. That's what my manager deals with. I want to, I just want, I just want, I want to be able to have the whole thing as my contribution. So it doesn't get mixed up with the influence of another mixer. Right? right. I just wanted all of this to be coming from me because I wanted the theme, you know, I wanted the, to really make sure that, that the depth and the, the approach, the way the story is being told was coming from me. And, mm -hmm. and that's not to say, you know, the vision for me is always what the artist vision is. I, I just wanted to be sure that, the approach, how, how the vocal is being presented was continuous within that. 
because I could really, really feel the vibe. And I mean, you know, let's let's talk about Grizzly Bear. I mean, you know, that's a record where it, it I literally when I wanted to start doing those kind of bands, I knew they would never call me from the records I was making. Yeah. Right. And so I literally for two years started changing my style and, and it would be a song here and a song there. And I would, all my go-tos, my main go-tos, I would purposely go, no. <laughs> and I would do the opposite or I would go, nope, can't do that anymore. Nope. No, that's, that's that style of music. I got to Can't do that. I can't do that. I can't do that. It was scary, but. I knew what would, the result would be is at some point I would get a shot at making a record that one of them would hear that would go, oh, oh, okay. This is like an indie record. This isn't yeah. all high polished and pop and radio friendly and stuff, right? But I'm still a pop mixer. So I'm going to go in there, you know, and very quietly you know, maybe ride the fence a little bit enough to maintain the integrity, but keep it, you know, and, and that's basically how I got, you know, the gig to, to make shields because I had done George Lewis, who was working with Chris prior to that. So, you know, it, that's the way it is. It's that, that constant pursuing the next style that I want to get into. Cause you notice I didn't stay in R and B. I right. moved. I slowly moved. You know, my whole discography keeps slowly moving. That was intentional because I didn't want to be just doing one style of music. I mean, you know, it, it makes it for a, a career that is you're always struggling because you've got to prove yourself. But at the end of the day, I was doing great music. I was mis mixing Shields and I was thinking, man, two years ago, I was thinking about how to do this. It was same with Coldplay. After, after the first Coldplay record, I was like, you know, the next record I do, I, I think the next record they're going to do is going to start having way more dynamics. You know, they, they, maybe they're going to get into the very intimate verses and then explode on the choruses. Hey, how do you do that? So I spent the next year and a half just, you know, working, figuring out how to make a small, intimate verse explode without the radio compressors going, right? Yeah. How do I, you know, which meant I, I had to do this within maybe 2 dB, 3 dB at the most of dynamics. So, you know, it was that my, my thought was always, okay, What's coming up next? What can I do next? And, and how am I going to learn? And I would always give myself plenty of time because if, I, if that record came along and I wasn't prepared, it was not going to be a good day. And, yeah. and I've had those not good days, so I know, I know how to avoid them in a way. So you're talking Coldplay, um, their album with Parachutes, right? So Parachutes was the first one where that was that was beautiful. They had open spaces. It was all very, very simple. They didn't add a lot of other stuff yet. A song and, like Yellow, right? Yellow was on right. that album. Yeah, I mean, that was, you know, that was what I, I had already at that point decided to really stop with the real... Uh, 
high gloss processing and, and you know the slick the slick sound i'd already yeah. been working away from that for a while and um so that when they came along it was perfect because i was i was ready to make things feel very organic but modern because organic can sound dull and uninteresting too right so it had to sound fresh but it had to be organic you know and so i had i had been learning how to try to do that more and more and get away from the high you know what was appropriate for what i was doing was fine but it wouldn't work for what i wanted to be doing next right and it wasn't and so that first record was great then when i thought wow i think i know where they're going to go here you know i think and the second rep came along and they didn't call me and i was like uh, what <laughs> you were ready for it <laughs> i was ready for it but i had done a good job you know and it was very successful why not the second you know and then but i had been working on this technique on on how to do it and i didn't get the record and so i was like Ugh. So then there was another band that came along called Athlete and everything within that record was doing exactly what I had been working on. It was a very intimate verse and a big chorus. And I was like, great, watch this, you know? And so when you listen to that record, you're hearing a couple of things going on. One, that I'm, I finally have a whole group of songs with one album to actually, you know, work it. And, and, and it's not about the technique. It's how can I make that chorus so explode and so dynamic? Mm -hmm. That's what this was about. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, maybe the Coldplay boys will hear that, you know? And this, it was a two-stage thing. It was like, okay, well, I, I would love to done with them, but this is fine. I'll do it with that. And then the third album comes along, X and Y, and it's actually a, more of a continuation of the second one didn't have that, that big you know quiet verse and big chorus it was more like a singer songwriter album beautiful album and so on x and y i was like there it is you know fix yeah. you I mean, you name it you know it's like right. quiet and big and i was like and i was ready i knew how to do it at that point so it timing fate everything you know you just kind of go with it just go with it and if it was meant to be it was meant to be you worked with My Morning Jacket on their album, Evil Urges, as well as uh, Okanokos, I believe. Oh, Okanokos oh, was so amazing because that was in surround sound. Ah. And, um, and I, wanted to, I wanted to be in the money seats, basically. You know, I wanted to be about uh, maybe no more than 10 feet from the stage. So as you're listening to the mix, you feel like you're that close to the stage. Hmm. And so you're going to hear audience and stuff around behind you and other things, but there's a certain presence that would come on. And um, I learned that the first time I learned that was when I was mixing um, back in the USA for McCartney, the live, and that was in surround. Right. And I had told, producer david khan this is what i want to do i want to i want to imagine that you're in the money seats because nobody gets to be in the money seats and most of these live shows it sounds so like reverby or big and and the, the, yeah. you know or it's either that or there's a close-up and you feel like you're in the guy's face i'm like you know i i want to be where most people can't afford it and it's such a great sound down there right that's why they're expensive 
And, uh, and so David said, oh, okay, all right. And I said, but it's very important that when you do that, it's, you have to have the video too. Right. I mean, they have to work together, right? Otherwise you're going to, it's just not going to sound realistic. It's hard to describe, but and she goes, okay, go for it. So I do it. This is not the story of, uh, you know, of, of uh, my morning jacket, but I'll get to it. And so McCartney walks in and after I've been mixing this, you know, obviously I'm pretty excited. I'm working with a beetle. You know, <laughs> who wouldn't be? And obviously I would like him to go, Oh, Michael, that's the best thing I've ever heard in my life. You should have mixed all the Beatles records. (laughs) (laughs) Which, of course, is not going to happen. But, you know, your mind is like, you know, this guy's heard a lot of great mixers. You know, uh uh-oh, what's going to happen? And he listens to it and he goes, oh. I was like, oh, man. (laughs) Death by hum. (laughs) And he goes... Um, I, okay. It sounds, seems a bit present, you know, and I, and I but I didn't have the video. I'm like, hmm. well, it, yeah, you want to listen to it with a video because I'm telling you, it's going to be, you know, I'm trying to convince Paul McCartney that, you know, it, and I was like, I was just dying inside and he goes, okay, okay. You know, and he had some changes and he had some, you know, cool stuff. And then he leaves and then he calls David and he goes, I hate it. You know, I'm going to go to the video now and, you know, but, you know, and, and like David's looking at me and I'm just like, I'm like, wait for the video. God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess about an hour later, he's finally there and they're playing them, my mix in the five one with the video. And he calls back and he goes, oh, I get it. It's good. And I was just like, man, <laughs> I just went from dying <laughs> to being back alive again, all in like a period of two hours. You can imagine, right? I mean, it was insane. So going back to Okinawa, it was the same approach, but now with confidence because I've got the video. I'm mixing to the video, right? And if I remember so, correctly, the video for that one does sort of take you down into the audience and you're kind of brought into the experience. Is that right? You remember? Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's that first beginning where there's this little movie going on, you know, like going to this house and mansion and stuff. But it was um, it was so much fun because I knew how to get to that, you know, that, you know, aisle six or something, you know, from the front, I knew how to get that sound and they were great. I mean, you know, what can you not love about that band? Those guys were just, just a pleasure. And, and, and yeah. And Joe Ciccarelli had done evil urges and then Mm -hmm. I had mixed that record. And again, the band was there and ask me anything about them. And I'll tell you, it was just, uh, it was, it was just unique. I loved, I loved them, you know. Something I've heard as far as My Morning Jacket goes, um, I believe the drummer, Patrick, I think he has a restaurant down in Louisville that I've always wanted to go to. It's like a, a steakhouse, I think. Have you ever been? Wow. No. Yeah. It's on the bucket list. Well, it would be on my bucket list too. And, you know, as a former drummer, he loved the drum sounds I got for him. He was like, oh, man, 
I'm so glad you're a drummer. I love what you're doing. Yeah, so it was, I always, I usually always had the drummer on my side, you know. Whenever cool. I'm mixing he's very record. underrated, I feel like. I feel like he's he's someone oh. that deserves more attention. Patrick is just incredible. They all are, you know. It's just yeah. What a band! Very solid band. Um, yeah. One other thing that I did want to talk to you about was um, mixing with the masters. Um, it's a you know, if you could explain that to people, I think that's a really important thing that people should know about. Yeah, it's it's been over ten years now. Um, as I was saying earlier, there used to be a staff of engineers who taught the assistants and then the assistants would become staff engineers and you would, you know, bring, continue the tradition of what you had learned in that particular studio onto the next generation. And that ended very early on that ended in the death of disco right around 79, where there was, you know, all the acts had been dropped by labels and there was no more, uh, that studios were empty. And so they had to get rid of the, they basically had all the engineers go independent, <laughs> but they couldn't get rid of the assistants. So assistants became, you know, the staff. And when that happened, the tradition of teaching and, and continuing that generation to generation was disappearing. Hmm. Um, I was still doing it because I would take on an assistant. I would train them for anywhere from three to even seven years, you know, um, and then move on to the next one and the next one. And there was this, um, I got a letter from this kid in France and I spoke French, although he wrote it in English, but you know, I grew up in France. So I was still fluent in French. And he, it was like, he kind of described how I've been developing over my career at this point. I was like, who is this guy? <laughs> you know, and he goes, you know, I, I would, I was wondering if I could get a job at electric lady and just, you know, watch you an intern. I said, well, you can get a job at electric lady, but you're going to be working, you know, interning for them. And then if there's time you can, you're not working, come in and, you know, we'll talk and you can hang. And, um, his name was Max Maxime, and and so he he did that. He did that. He came to New York, and uh, I was able to get him an internship. And uh, a few times he would sit in and just watch me, and I would just like stay out of my peripheral, you know. But you can watch me for the day. And um, he did that a few times, and the summer was coming to a close. And then we say goodbye. He's a nice kid. And a couple months later, he, he wrote, hey, I've got this idea. What would you think of doing a seminar in France? I was like, you're going to fly me to France to do a two-hour, three-hour seminar? And he goes, no, I was thinking a week. I was like, a week? I never talked that long. <laughs> <laughs> long story short, um, I went there and... I liked the idea and it was a, you know, I was like, let's see what happens. But I wanted to do what had stopped. I wanted to share everything, my whole philosophy. I didn't really care much about showing technique because to me, technique, as I mentioned earlier, technique has to change all the time. So right. technique on its own means nothing. Why are you using this tool? 
what's going on in your mind that that makes you do this? You know, why is it that I can get this, you know, a really cool sound and Manny and Tony and, you know, Spike or, or any, you know, they all get this great sound in a completely different way. Why? Because of what's going on in your head. That's what you need to learn. And so I was like, that's, that is going to be the philosophy here is that there isn't going to be any secrets uh, because at the end of the day, if you're not creative, it won't matter. Mm-hmm. It's like, you're not going to take business away from me. Or, and if you do, you do good for you. Right. But that wasn't my point of being there. My point was, let's just get this history of, of bringing, you know, tradition of what th- these great engineers out there, you know, I, yeah. I, forget me. Look at, you got Al Schmidt, you know, you've got, uh, I mean, the, the Joe Ciccarelli, you've got you, the name, you know, on and on. But I also yeah. wanted to get, the, you know, young, younger guys like Joe and Manny. And Manny was a good buddy. And Chris Lord Algie was a good buddy. And Tony Maserati was a good, you know. And so I spent that first week learning how to articulate what I never articulated. You know, mixing is a lonely thing. And you don't talk about, well, I'm doing this because I'm thinking that. It, that doesn't happen. You just mix. And so it was a very, very difficult week for me because I had never articulated my thoughts. So I had a tiny little on the plane. I had the tiny little index card of like, what is the core of why I do what I do? And I realized it was based on my on five emotions. I'm either going to be happy or sad, you know, and I mean, the song is going to be happy or sad, or it's going to be angry, or it's going to be disco physical, right? And, and there was five, then it basically came down to four. And, and, and then all the variations of that, I thought, okay, I could probably talk about that for a day. (laughs) I got seven days, what am I going to (laughs) do? And, and so, you know, we worked out a template. And by the end, and these, there were like, 15 or seven people that came from all around the world. I mean, far, far away. And I wasn't going to let them down. I mean, it was like, okay, this is really important. And, and I've never talked in front of people this long. I, the longest I talked for me was two hours at some AES or something, you know, it was like seven. We're looking at almost 10 hours a day. I was like, how can I, there's not that much in my brain. Well, actually there was. Yeah, turns out. (laughs) And they all left and super happy. And I was like, well, you know what? You know, this this was a good thing. This is giving back. And I called up my good friends, you know, and I said, hey, come on over, you know, bring the family. And so I got Manny to come over and then Tony and then Chris. And and then it slowly spread. Then I called other friends. And then, you know, I mean, some guys took forever together chad blake took forever but finally when he showed up he was like this is the best thing i've ever done in my life you know i was like i've been trying to tell you this for years <laughs> you know and and because it was a way of giving back and 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 just sharing what you do you know and and it's going to come back tenfold in that way you know you're making people really really happy and and I will, along with my other friends, you'll be, you know, I'll be at one of these conventions and somebody walk up to you or, or I get an email and go, you've changed my life. You changed my life. I've got number one hits now in my country. In fact, as soon as I got home, the, the, the regular 
clients that I were working with, they were like, what happened to you? This is amazing, you know? And well, because it's about the mindset, you know, it's a mindset. And, and that to me was the great thing of being with Mixed with the Masters. Um, I'm moving on to other things now, you know, Mixed with the Masters, the, the two guys, Victor and Maxime are doing great. They're doing all their own stuff. I'm kind of stepping away from that and, and, you know, doing other things now because I was really just exclusive for all these years. And there's other things that I wanted to, you know, new challenges and stuff I want to do, but, but I, you know, they're going to continue on successfully for a long time because the groundwork was laid, the philosophy, the, the approach. Um, and I'm really, really proud of that. And I, it, it's helped so many people. It's just a, so, you know, you got to give back when you, you got something good to offer. Absolutely. You should be proud. That is very cool. Um, you also on your website have like a Q&A section. Um, is that still yeah. active? Can people go and yeah. check that out and, you know, correspond with you? So. Yeah, cool. I mean, I, you know, whenever some good questions come up, I think I've answered just about everything that relates to everything. Yeah. But, you know, I try to, uh, you know, you can go through that. And, and alone and go, oh, oh, I was wondering how this worked. You know, there's the, the mystery when you hang out with me for a week, you go, oh, the mystery is not the outside. The mist, it's in the inside. And we all have that. We all have that ability to project. It's just a matter of doing it and committing to it, you know, and because it's all in here. It's not, it's not the toys around you. It's got nothing to do with that. Those are just the extensions of your thoughts. And if you're not creative and you're not able to, to be expressive, and, and the great thing is that each one of us is so individual in how we can interpret the four basic emotions, right? I mean, my pain is going to be different than your pain. But when we interpret it, everybody knows it's pain, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? And my happiness. And so when you think about all these great mixers out there, how were they uh, interpreting that? Well, they were doing it because they had the, they really were able to be honest with themselves and go, this is how I interpret the vision that the band has. It's not, this is not my record. This is the band's record, but how do I interpret their vision? Yeah. And you become and, a, a vessel for the band, you know? Right. You don't become, you know, this isn't, this is a Brower mix. You might mm -hmm. know it's a Brower mix by how dynamic it is and by how emotional it is. That's good, but not like, oh, that's his sound, the sound, yeah. same sound, boom, 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 you know? Yeah. And, and that's what I think, you know, based on that, everything else it means that anybody can become a great mixer if you just tap into yourself tap into yourself and understand those simple four emotions um and you know when i go back to wow this is great when i you know phil ramon and stuff i'm like so i can still be expressive i can still perform right yeah. And that's the basis for everything. Because if you think of a musician when he's up on stage, what is he doing? He's doing exactly what I'm talking about. What's the difference between performing on stage 
and then performing when you're mixing. That's where 90% of the people that come to my seminars, they, they don't make that transition. And I go, my friend, what, why? Why are you doing this at the mix when you're doing this when you're performing? And then they go, I don't know. I go, well, try it. Close your eyes. Have fun. And then they just go, bing. <laughs> it's like, oh, my God, could it be this easy? Yeah. I think that's uh, that's uh, something that also can be applied to drumming. Uh, I'm a drummer as well. And when you talk about like the technicality of it all, you can get re really lost in that kind of thing. Like, you know, exactly, you know, uh, right on the beat and everything's just like perfectly in a mathematical kind of sense. And I feel like that can be applied in the mixing world as well, where you can get lost in the technicalities. But really, if you don't totally. maintain that emotional drive behind the whole thing, what's the point? You know, yeah, and you know what they do? They come in and they go, Wow, really good mix, but I don't feel it. Yeah, and so it's not a really good mix, it's balanced well, but who gives a shit? Yeah, there are endless creative possibilities in your field. Um, is that what keeps <laughs> you coming back? That's one of the things I think to get uh, just stuck on one thing um, would become very, very boring. And I become, there's too many ways to get jaded in this business. There's a lot of things that are around the music that right. uh, are very, very difficult to deal with. Um, and I'm always saying, okay, you know, I, I think I've done as much as I can with this particular style of music. What can I do now? You know, what's, what's something else that really, really excites me. And then I, every four or five years, I would sit down right about Christmas time and I would say, okay, what are we doing now? You know, because I've done this long enough. The sound is, you know, is being uh, either being used a lot by other people. So it's no longer really fresh or I'm just getting bored with it. What's my next challenge? What's my next challenge? And then I would just think about it and I go, okay, well, I want to go. And that's how I did, you know, with Indy. You know, my manager said, well, you know, your, your income's going to drop tremendously. And I go, okay, well, I got savings. Let's go. <laughs> you know, and then the next one was like, okay, you know, I want to get back into doing maybe something more, you know, some, a modern approach to, you know, the modern R&B. And, and that's where John Mayer came into the story. And, you know, so it, it's definitely a planned because, uh, you know, you, you visualize something, you want to just go after it and you just slowly, slowly keep going after. It. And, you you know, you've got managers who may know that particular person or a friend, you know, I try to go from many different angles to get to, to that person so I can mix their, their song, you know, and it, it's always, yeah. So keeps me, keeps me going. So here we are finding ourselves, you know, around that Christmas time period, uh, looking ahead, you know, what are you visualizing? Where do you see yourself going? About a year ago, it was actually Christmas time, maybe almost two years ago. I was like, I had a friend whose record I had mixed is from Puerto Rico, Henry Cole, really, really great drummer and, and just great great sounds and excitement and I'm mixing that. And, and 
I just fell in love with that feel. Um, and he showed me some great, you know, he taught me some really good, good stuff that just to, how to keep the core of the, you know, keeping it from being clean and just, just getting, you know, the different instruments, the different percussion instruments I had never, you know, mixed before. And that led me to going, wow, you know, Latin music, South America, Brazil, <laughs> Colombia. And I thought, okay, that's what I'm going to do. And so because I had been doing seminars, I started mixed with a master's some 10 years ago. Um, people were always calling me to do outside seminars. And I would do these three-day seminars around the world. And so I started focusing on Colombia. And then I go, okay, I want to meet who the local musicians are. I want to meet the label. So the, the deal was I'll do your three-day seminar, but I need to network. And then when I went to Brazil, it was the same thing. And, I, and Brazil, I really, really fell in love with. And so, you know, it's a, slow, it's a slow start, but people are getting to know me that, you know, that I'm available to mix because it's a different budget, uh, different requirements and stuff. And I don't care. I just want to get slowly up to the point where the top bands, the top musicians are saying, oh, yeah, okay, you know, Michael's available. That's great. Let's. You know, but can he do this? And so in order for them to say that, the same thing for Chris Taylor to say, well, can he do a record for me? They should be doing a lot of local records and then that word will get out. You know, and that's that's how you network. You don't just like, yes, I'm Michael Brower. Uh, give me your best record. They don't give a rat's ass, really. <laughs> it's like, you know what? We've got a do. We've got a lot of great mixers here that do a great job. We don't need you. Like, what is it that you can offer that would be, you know, different that we would like to? Because, you know, and I have to prove myself all over again. You know, I'm like, I'm game with that. Fine. Let's do it. Give me a shot. You know, and what does that do? That just keeps your creative juices going. And, and it certainly keeps your ego in check because that's almost a daily thing you're fighting, you know, <laughs> you know, like. I have all these reward awards around me and stuff. I'm like, yeah, this is all the past. It's all nice. You know, but if I, if I were to go, well, I must be good because <laughs> like, well, no, that was a long time ago. So it, it, I think it's, uh, it keeps me excited. So that's what I'm doing. And then, yeah. And then I, I, I discovered, you know how there's, there's two track mixes. There's songs where you go, man, they sound so good and there's no multi-track. And you go, or, you know, a label goes, I wish, I wish we had a multi-track on this because this song really could sound better or we could do a little something different. And it's like a two-track. And mm -hmm. I did this once with Bob Dylan Live, 1966. That was really just a three-track. It was a documentation of the event, right? But I wanted it to come alive. This was a very, very important day. This is where Dylan brings out his, on, on the second set, he brings out the band. He's no longer acoustic. You know, people are freaking out. And, and I'm hearing this, but I'm not feeling, I, I, can, I can hear what's going on, but I need to like, I, I got to get in there. I got to get in there. But I only have, I think it was an instrumental. There were two tracks, and, and I think Bob was on the third track. 
And so I did what I had to do. You know, I brought it up on like, I malted it on a lot of faders and I'm moving the faders and I'm compressing and EQing differently. And I did this for hours and I was going out of my mind. I was going nuts because I was like, what am I doing? Like, what am I looking for? Because this sounds like shit right now, what I'm doing, you know, I'm not making anything better. And, and I just, but I was like, I know I can, get, I want to get into this. I want to get in here. You know, I want to get in. And something happened at some point about six hours, seven hours in. And I was like, oh, <laughs> it grabbed me. And I'm like, I'm in, I'm in. Right. <laughs> and then I basically said, okay. And now it was going to be a performance and I would ride, you know, if solo came up or something, I would ride that particular fader. I would ride things up and down, you know, just, just to get, continue the feeling. And then it was done. And I, Steve Berkowitz was the producer on that. And um, it, it, you know, it was great. And, but that took a long process. Many, many, many years later, um, you're familiar with Isotope. They have they came up with this software on RX5 where you can take a stereo mix and you can extract the drums, the bass, the guitar, the vocal. Like I, I have no idea how they do that. I have no idea. <laughs> I mean, the, the, it's just beyond genius, right? And 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 I was like, so a friend of mine called me. John Haber, um, who had a band, you know, back in college days and stuff. And um, he says, Hey, listen, I've got this, I've got some two tracks, you know, what can you do with them? And I was like, I'll tell you what I can do with it, man. I can, I can actually remix it. And I ended up doing a, a video on it with MixCon. I, and I had just learned it the week before when I did the MixCon, I was still, my mind was still like, Woohoo! You know, <laughs> check this out. You know, but but the, what is great about this is that nothing is impossible any anyway. You know, I mean, there there's got to be catalogs of, of stuff. You know, of where the mixes weren't that good. I mean, I'm certainly not going to be doing a Blue Note <laughs> catalog with Rudy Van Gelder, right? I mean, you don't touch that. But I'm talking about other records. There were. You know, this catalogs where you go, man, I wish I could have heard the bass a little, you know, or I could wish the vocal yeah. could have come out a little bit, or I wish the guitars could have been. And then you've got the catalog and you go, hey, let's release, right? And so that's what I've been doing lately for part of the time because it's fun. It's like, it's like, wow, how good can I get this? How how can I still maintain the integrity and just make it like pop, right? It's in, I'm telling you, it's it's just this. Technology for me just is, allows me to do things that I wanted to do. Yeah, it sounds like you have a lot of fun. You really put your heart into the music and it shows. I mean, the listeners out there, I speak on behalf of everybody. We all appreciate it. Uh, it's just an amazing uh, contribution to music that you've offered. So, I mean, it's really amazing. And the fact that you, re you remain available to people and keep an open heart and keep an open mind to things and aren't just, you know, jaded or stuck in your ways. Like it's just, a, you know, you're really doing something that I think a lot of people are trying to uh, figure out and get to that point on a philosophical level, you know. I, you know, I think if you become stuck in your ways, then you're now in the past. And then you become some 
old legend or something you know it's it's just the mind it can stay fresh that's this is great this is not a sport my shelf life doesn't end at 35 yeah right i'm a mixer i mean look at al schmidt <laughs> you know what is he now 90 this man <laughs> is like yoda and he is still great Right. And he still loves what he does. So there's hope for all of us to do that. But there's also people that are 30 that sound like they're 80 because mm -hmm. they're old because they had a big hit and they stuck to that. Well, that's my sound. Right. Well, actually, that was your sound. Now that's your old sound because everybody else is doing it. So it's not fresh anymore. And by the way, that was right for that band. You know, there's just so many things as a mixer you have to adapt. You have to adapt two ways. You got to adapt from a technological approach. I mean, I used to have nine racks. The world knew me from my racks more than they knew me. Right? <laughs> and then the, slowly I had close friends like Nico Bolas and Tony uh, Maserati and Manny, who, you know, teaching me like, come on, you can do hybrid. You can do hybrid. That's going to, it's going to be important. And slowly I started learning how to still feel great because I didn't want to compromise. That was my fear. And then the second one is musically, you know, you just have to, the bands are changing their, their sound, their approaches, their messages are changing. So as a mixer, you have to be working hard to do that also, you know, now it doesn't mean that you have to be mixing music. You don't like the mix, you know, but you have to, at least be aware of where you want to go. And if you want, if I want to be doing Brazilian bands, then there's certain things I have to drop and certain things that I have to learn. And that's what I've been doing for the past year or two, man. You know, when, when, when they hear the records I mix and the way I, I treat the percussion and stuff, there's that same excitement that I have when I'm performing. Right. I feel like I'm on stage. And so, but it takes, you know, it took a little time to figure out how to, you know, the Barillo and, or, uh, you know, other, other instruments on, on how to EQ those so that they really project properly and how they should be projected within, you know, you want to maintain the integrity, but I also like to put in my thing on top of that, you know, without a stamp, but just more like here, here's a, otherwise, why would they call me? So, those are the two things that have to happen all, you know, continuously. And then, then you got to fight, you know, other things. But to me, that's very, very important to keep your mind fresh. I have one more question for you uh, before we wrap this up. I know that snare drums are a very essential part, uh, you know, of, of audio mixing and everything. Um, I'm curious what your thoughts are on Memphis's uh, specifically the Memphis snare drum sound. Uh, specifically as it relates to Royal Studios um, with artists like Al Green or Ann Peebles of that era, and also sort of like where the pinnacle of great snare sound sort of is at right now, because I've heard you talk well, about how snare can sort it, of embody an entire era of, of audio. Well, sort of. that's where you, you nailed it right there, is the snare will tell you what year this record was made. And um, I mean, the great thing about those Al Greens, it's, it always felt like it was the fattest snare in the world. You know, it, it always felt like it was a snare on a floor top. Yeah. <laughs> right. 
And that was the sound. And it was just so big. And it was right under Al's chin, you know. And I learned that from, you know, early age. It's like, if you're going to do something, get, you know, that snare. Be, be careful that you don't timestamp the song with a snare that you're going to regret years from now going, oh, man, that was... That was that non-Lin snare sound that's just, uh, you, know, <laughs> you know, try to keep it timeless. And But, you know, look, one of the greatest things I, I was able to accomplish with how much a snare is important to a song was for Yellow. I mean, you listen that to that snare drum. It's right under Chris throughout the whole song. It's loud and it's got this weird hollow sound to it that just enhance that kind of hopeful loneliness that yellow presents you know it's so much like the video that he does and so there's a you know a very perfect example of what can a snare do and you know and today's snares today's snares are you know they're always changing but they can be fat they can be really really tiny so it's almost like a <laughs> you know and everything builds around it and um, it continues for a few months and then somebody comes up with something new and then everybody goes, jumps on that, on that boat. And, you know, but it's always interesting how it helps just express the, the feel of where everyone is at, you know, that the snare and the kick is just pushing through. And then when it's nasty, there's probably a lot of stress going on out there. And then when it's softer and gentler, the culture is calming down a little bit. That particular group in the music is just that the snare is always the drive underneath the big picture. You know, it's not, it's not musical, but it is in the sense that it, it creates that atmosphere for the story to be told. And uh, yeah, it's it's cool. That's beautiful, yeah, it's, man. We could talk all day. I love your stories, and just it's fascinating, man. But um, I think you know I don't want to take up all your time and everything. I know you got a lot going on, so uh, just uh, all the best from Diddy TV here in Memphis. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. We hope you enjoyed this conversation with Michael Brower. Be sure to listen to other Diddy TV podcasts for more from the leaders and legends in Americana and Roots music. And don't forget to visit DiddyTV.com for more exclusive on-demand content and to download the official Diddy TV app from your app store today. Standing by the curb, waiting out the rain. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. 
Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any fantasy points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. 